You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Benson. All right, I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to be right back in 1 Thessalonians once again. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we once again praise you and thank you for this church. God, I thank you for the individuals that make up this church. I thank you for their salvation. I thank you for their own growth in their life. Um, God, I thank you for the work that the Holy Spirit is doing in them to make them more and more like your son. God, I thank you for the time that we have right now to focus on your word. I pray that you would um, encourage us and teach us. God, that we would better understand what you desire for us as a church and for the individuals that make it up. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so turn your attention back to 1 Thessalonians. We're going to be here uh, briefly here at the end of chapter 1. You'll remember... Right before Christmas, we kind of wrapped up as far as talking about each verse in chapter 1. We wrapped that up right at the end of December, right before Christmas. And before we get into chapter 2, I wanted to kind of look at the last couple of verses one more time. And then I want to show you some similarities from something that happens in the Old Testament. Alright, so 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. You'll remember we're building off the whole idea that that Paul has come to establish this church. He's established this church in Thessalonica based on the clear direction of um, God through a dream directing him to this area. He's building this church, and we've seen specifically how he did it. He did it through intentional discipleship. He did it through intentionally conveying... There's no sermon notes today if you're looking for sermon notes. Yeah, no sermon notes today. We're more going to be just walking through an Old Testament story than anything. And so, I couldn't really think of a cool way to make notes today. So, no notes. Um, Yeah, I don't have any idea what I was saying. Um, Discipleship. Intentional discipleship. He's building the church through intentional discipleship. Through him and his partner setting clear, mature examples of what it means to follow Jesus. And so... We see these people responding to the gospel. There's genuine conviction, genuine growth that's happening, and the church is flourishing. And Paul just continues to uh, encourage them, but he harps on like how this whole thing has happened. And he says in verse 6, You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. We said that essentially Paul is in Achaia, his church is in Macedonia, and he's saying everything in between, you guys have joined that gap through your testimony. Everybody between the two of us know about your conversion. You've sounded forth. The gospel has gone out because you guys have been faithful to respond to it. And to do what the gospel says. You've obeyed the gospel. Everybody's hearing about your conversion. When we go into new places to set up new churches, they've already heard about you. It's making our work a lot easier. He says specifically, this is what they know. Verse 9, for they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you. How you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us. From the wrath to come. Okay? We're going to come back to this passage, but I want you to jump back into the Old Testament now to the book of Daniel. 
when we were initially talking about the transition in uh, the teaching format, I told Ben and Tyson and Adam, you know, think through how you would teach this passage. And um, I gave some examples of how I would teach it. And I'm actually going to use one of the examples today and teach it uh, from an adult perspective. Uh, From the story of the fiery furnace, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. A familiar story, a story that most of us learned in children's church or in Sunday school if you grew up in church. Or a story that you were quickly introduced just from coming to church. Can someone tell me, like if... You were talking to a new believer, and they're reading this story, and they ask you the question, what is the purpose of the fiery furnace story being included in our Bibles? What would you say is the overall purpose of this story? I mean, it's a a nice kid story. It provides great coloring sheets. But what is the purpose of this story? What would you say? There's not necessarily a right or wrong. I'm going to tell you what I think the purpose is. But, I mean, your purpose might be just as good. I mean, there's not a, a secret code that we're going to see that the purpose is. I think it points out three men who were taken into captivity and separated them from the Jews who made themselves comfortable in Babylonian culture and the, the ones who did not make themselves comfortable in <coughs> They decided to... Okay, it definitely shows the the different perspective that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have when they're brought into a foreign land that is evil and sinful in comparison to all their friends and everybody else, because everybody else falls right into the culture of Babylon. And they do things the Babylonian way. They start worshiping the false gods, and these guys stay separated. They stay holy in the sense that they're separated from this. <coughs> what else? I think it uh, like definitely is a good picture of like true nature of faith, and that them understanding like <coughs> God is good and true no matter what happens, like regardless of our circumstances. So whether we get thrown into this fire and we're consumed, or whether He chooses to rescue us. We decide to believe that he's true. Yeah, we're going to see that when they're faced with the perspective of going into the fiery furnace, they're okay with either option, being saved or not being saved, that they've resolved that God is good no matter how the story plays itself out. So we definitely see some uh, true demonstration of faith and that God is true. God is right, God is good, no matter what my circumstance looks like. Any other thoughts on what the purpose of this story is? I think, you know, it's one of the few times we've talked about how we actually get the physical picture of Christ and God being with you through the trials, through the flames of the furnace. So we need to acknowledge that God is there with us. Okay. We one time it's actually got the picture of him actually being there with you. Okay, yeah. I mean, when you've got them in the furnace, we know that the fourth figure appears. We know that Nebuchadnezzar says it looks like a son of the gods. He later on in the passage refers to it as an angel. So it's not totally clear if this is a Christophany. A Christophany is an appearance of Jesus before the incarnation, before he's born in Bethlehem. There are different times in the Old Testament where it appears that Jesus is on the earth in bodily form before his birth in Bethlehem. 
We know he eternally existed, so Jesus didn't come into being in Bethlehem. But this could be a Christophany. It could be Jesus in the furnace, or it could be an angel. But yeah, a demonstration that God is with us even when we're going through difficult times. They, um, I guess we assume they saw the, the fourth person. We're not told that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego actually saw the fourth person necessarily. Nebuchadnezzar saw the fourth person, and everybody looking in saw the fourth person. Um, I think we probably just assume they saw the fourth person walking around there with them. But, um, you know, we don't always have the, the privilege of seeing how God is with us. I mean, we definitely don't see God um, in the same form they did with us. But there is the assurance that God is with us through um, the trials that we face. Any other thoughts on the purpose of this story? I think it shows, like, their integrity to Obedience to the laws of God is how important they were to them. To like in Acts, where it talks about whether it's right in your eyes for us to obey God, other than we decide that we're going to obey God. Okay. The resolve to to obey God, and I mean it's it's really cool if you. I mean the whole book of Daniel is about this. It's about Daniel in the lion's den resolving to obey God no matter what. It's about them in the fiery furnace obeying God no matter what. Even previously, and we'll look at it real briefly, when they first get to Babylon, it's them resolving to obey God no matter what. All right, let's look at this real quick. We're going to walk through the story, point out a couple of things. We'll tie it back to 1 Thessalonians, and then we'll be done. Some quick background information to kind of set the, the mood here for what happens. The kingdom of Israel, God delivers them from Egypt, brings them to the promised land. Moses isn't allowed to go in. Joshua has to bring them to the promised land. Uh, we go through the time of Judges, and then God starts to establish kings. We have King Saul, we have King David, we have King Solomon, and then we have who? Anybody know? King after Solomon. We have Rehoboam, who does just a poor, poor job of taking over the kingdom from his dad Solomon. If you don't know the story, Rehoboam, son of Solomon, he takes over the kingdom uh, but instead of seeking the wisdom of people who know how to be a king, like his dad's um, officials, he decides to get with his buddies and basically says, hey, what should I do now that I'm king? And you see a lot of immaturity. When I was reading it, I thought of the movie Little Big League where the kid inherits the Minnesota Twins from his granddad. And, and he's like 12 years old. And him and his 12-year-old boys are sitting around going, what trades should we make for you know, our major league franchise that we now own? You see a ton of immaturity with these guys. And the advice that they give to Rehoboam is, you should be really, really mean. And by being really, really mean, you'll make everybody scared of you and they'll obey you. And it's like just, okay, like the most immature person possible just got put into power because he does it. He gets really, really mean, but instead of everybody obeying him, ten of the tribes of Israel say, you're not our king, and the, the kingdom splits. We have the ten tribes that are now known as the kingdom of Israel. We have the two tribes, Benjamin and Judah, that are now known as Judah. Okay? So you see Israel's history divide here, and you've got separate kings over separate kingdoms. We work all the way down to a man named Jehoiakim, who's the king of Judah. And when we get to the person Jehoiakim in 2 Kings, we learn... Who this guy is, essentially. In 2 Kings 23, verse 36. It 
It says, Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he began to reign. He reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Zebedah, the daughter of Padiah of Rumah. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all his fathers had done. So this guy's evil. King Jehoiakim, evil. Back to Daniel. In Daniel chapter 1, it says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. He takes the, the treasure out of God's temple, the temple that Solomon built, and he takes it back to his temple in Babylon and puts it in his God's temple. And verse 3, Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, Youths without blemish of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. Okay, so Jehoiakim, king of Judah. This is where Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah live. All their names get changed when they get to Babylon. Daniel becomes Belteshazzar. Hananiah becomes Shadrach. Mishael becomes Meshach. Azariah becomes Abednego. Okay, They're yanked from their home in Judah. They're taken to Babylon. They're deemed smart or noble or part of the royal family. In some way, they pass the test of being brought to King Nebuchadnezzar's palace. And he's going to especially teach them and train them in his school for three years. He wants to essentially brainwash them into being Babylonians. If he can convince these people that they're Babylonians, it helps him keep a handle on his empire. There's less likelihood of someone wanting to overthrow an empire that they believe they're a part of. So so the the plan is to brainwash these guys into being Babylonians. We've already said that Daniel and his friends resolved to obey God despite being in a foreign land. But what we often miss, and this may be more of a testimony to who these guys are, They come from a land that worships false gods. It's not like these guys were yanked out of a good Christian environment, taken to Babylon, and now their faith is put to the test. These guys are growing up in Judah where Jehoiakim is evil and he's he's leading the whole land of Judah to be evil. So these guys resolved to be obedient to God well before they got to Babylon. These guys were different before they got to Babylon. Their buddies that start worshiping the false gods of Babylon, they didn't drop the ball with their faith when they got to Babylon. They dropped it in Judah. We're told in Scripture the reason these guys had to leave Judah is because God was so angry with their sin. So all these their buddies were bad before they got to Babylon. The, the testing of the faith actually started in Judah. And these guys had resolved to obey God. Now think about this. Daniel, Hananiah, Azariah, Mishael, they're obedient to God. They're part of God's covenant nation. They're obedient to God despite the idolatry and the idol worship going on. Everybody else as a whole in Judah, wicked, evil, doing what Jehoiakim's doing. All their obedience to God gets them what? Exiled to another country. They're taken from their families. All their obedience gets them exiled to another country. Their resolve to obey God is clearly highlighted here in the sense that they continue to obey God. They could have said, forget it. 
I mean, we've been obedient in a bad land already. Now we're shipped to a new land. What in the world is God doing? But we know that God remembers his children. And he ends up allowing these four to be promoted to a high status in Babylon. When they're brought there, they have the whole discussion about we will, we won't eat the food from the king's table. They don't have to eat it. It's part of the violation of the Jewish law. God provides for them. They don't have to eat it. Um, And so they're promoted. Okay? That brings us to the story in Daniel chapter 3. Daniel chapter 3 verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Can anybody explain to me why this guy would build a golden statue that is essentially, if you were to stack 15 of me up, that's how tall the statue was. All right, solid gold. It's one and a half of me wide. So if you laid me down and then cut me in half, that would be how wide the statue was. Okay. Why does Nebuchadnezzar wake up one morning and decide to build a 15-foot or a 90-foot statue of gold of him? Anybody know? I mean, you just wake up one day and say, I got an idea. I think this will be good. I got a lot of excess gold. I really like the way I look. I like myself jumbo-sized, so I'm going to make a statue. Why does he build a statue this big made out of gold? Anybody? He has a dream in Daniel chapter 2 about a statue, and it's made out of all different kinds of metals. And it represents, according to Daniel's interpretation, different kingdoms. He's the head of gold. He's the one that's in reign right now. But it continues to break down into different metals. And so the communication from Daniel is, you're in charge of the Babylonian Empire right now, but you won't always be. So Nebuchadnezzar's response is, yes, I will. And I'm going to defy God's dream that he gave me. I'm going to defy Daniel's interpretation by building the statue, and it's going to be all out of gold. Because I'm going to be around as long as I can be. I don't care about the prophecies of these other nations. It's all about me. And he says, everybody's going to worship me. And he makes the the law that we know that when you hear the music playing, you bow down and worship the idol. Now look what it says in verse 4. The herald proclaimed aloud, You were commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you were to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Verse 7, Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn and all the other instruments, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. What does that remind you of? The language that she used there? Does that remind you of anything? All the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Revelation. What happens in Revelation? People from every tribe, nation, and tongue worship who? They worship Christ. You have a stark contrast going on here. 
that people from every nation, tribe, and tongue that make up the Babylonian Empire are told to worship this golden image. It's true that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are a model of faith in this story, but let's don't miss the fact that this story is about God and His desire for His glory. I mean, God is the hero of this story. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are great examples of faith. They're guys that we should look up to, that we should encourage our kids with, but they are tools and instruments in this story for a much bigger purpose purpose than their faith. God is is doing something really unique in this story, and we're going to see how it unfolds. So all the peoples, nations, and tribes, and tongues worshiping. Then we skip down to verse 12. Some of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's buddies don't like all the recognition they're getting. They're jealous because if you read in chapter 1, God blesses them, and it says that they're actually found to be ten times smarter and healthier than everybody else. So there's some jealousy in these other guys, and so they look to get these three in trouble. So in verse 12 it says, There are certain, they go to the king Nebuchadnezzar, There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. They go and tattle on them. They say, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, you got three guys here. They're not doing what you said. You should put them in the fiery furnace like you promised. Look what Nebuchadnezzar's response is. In verse 13, we're told that he's, he's in a fit of rage. And basically, in his conversation with him, he's saying, you guys crazy? I mean, did you not hear the instructions? I said to bow down to me. And if you don't bow down to me, I'm going to throw you in a fiery furnace. He says, I'll give you a second opportunity. I'm going to strike up the band, and you better bow down and worship this image. And if you don't, the fiery furnace is where you're going. And then look how he caps off his statement to them at the very end of verse 15. Who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? I mean, there's a challenge on the table here. He says, in case you haven't noticed, I'm in charge. I'm all gold. Forget about the dream you heard about. I'm all gold. The statue has been made into all gold. I'm the authority here. If you don't worship it, the fiery furnace is where you're going. And you tell me the God that can save you from what I'm going to do. And then we have what Jake brought up. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, Oh, Nebuchadnezzar. We have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, if he doesn't save us, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. I said, correction, our God is able to save us from you, Nebuchadnezzar. We don't doubt his omnipotence. He's all-powerful. He can save us from, a, from a, a silly, fiery furnace. But if he doesn't, if he doesn't do this, we're still not worshiping you. We're still not bowing down. There's an understanding of sovereignty that they have here. Sovereignty, we define it as God works everything for his glory and our good. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say, God is able to save us from this, but if he doesn't, it must be for our good. 
because whatever he decides to do, it doesn't affect our decision. There's unbelievable resolve here to say, we're not at worshiping you no matter what happens. We know he's able to save us, but he may not. That has huge implications for us. We don't ever need to doubt God's ability to do something in our life. God can heal. God can deliver. God can provide. But it doesn't mean that he always has to or he's obligated to. Somebody close to us gets cancer. God is absolutely able to deliver people from cancer. But if he chooses not to, it should not affect our service, our love, and devotion to him. So many people walk away from the faith because God doesn't do what they think he should do. These guys have not created a God in their mind that has to save them from the fiery furnace. They have a real genuine knowledge of who God is that he can or doesn't have to come through in this situation. And by come through meaning delivering them from it. Because he will come through. He will work this situation for their good and for his glory. They're just not exactly sure what that's going to look like. Then, that makes Nebuchadnezzar real angry. And he throws him in the fiery furnace. But he's so angry, he says, crank it up. Crank the heat up. I want it seven times hotter than ever before. We're really going to toast these guys. He gets it so hot that the guys that are normally responsible for throwing people into this furnace are torched before they can even get to the entrance. I mean, in, in the process of throwing them in, the heat is so strong that the guards are killed from it. So there's no question nobody should be saved from this fire because people that aren't even getting into the fire are dead from it. But these guys end up in the fire. Verse 24, then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men into the fire? They answered and said to the king, true, O king. He answered and said, but I see four men and they're not even tied up anymore. Walking in the midst of the fire and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. The satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him, who set aside the king's command, who yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore I make a decree, any people, nation, or tongue that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses laid in ruins, for there is no other God. Listen to this last phrase. It's great. There is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then he promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. That statement, there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. I think there was two things that impressed Nebuchadnezzar beyond, beyond his ability to understand about this situation. That this God of Israel was able to save in a very unique way. He was able to rescue in a very unique way. 
One is the obvious, that these guys aren't burned up in a furnace. I mean, that's the obvious rescue that happens here. That these guys were rescued from a burning furnace. But I think Nebuchadnezzar is making a, a bigger statement than just, wow, your God can save you from a fiery furnace. Because look again at that description. He sent his angel and delivered his servants. And then he describes these servants. He says, they trusted in him. They set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. He's saying, this god rescues in a unique way because not only did he save them from the fiery furnace, he saved them from idolatry. These guys come from Judah where they don't even worship this god anymore. They have every reason, like Jen said, to do what we're doing here in Babylon. I mean, some people have described it as Vanity Fair from Pilgrim's Progress. That every single thing that your flesh would have wanted was offered to these boys in this palace. I mean, it was basically free licensure for someone who was maybe 12, 13 years old. Because we're told that they wanted the youth of that time brought to the palace. Basically, they were given free reign. Do whatever you want to here in Babylon. Eat whatever you want to. Do whatever you want to. And they kept themselves pure. But notice who Nebuchadnezzar is pointing to in this story. He's not saying, everybody worship Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Look at how great they are. Look at how pure they've remained. Look at the fact that they aren't burned by fire. No. He says, you better not say anything about their God because he rescues in a unique way. He saves them from fire, but he started the saving process before the fiery furnace was even thought about. These guys have been saved to him, saved from idolatry, saved to a life of holiness and purity that Judah can't seem to get them to worship idols, and we can't seem to get them to worship idols. These guys have genuinely broken free from the idols of the flesh, and they worship this God, and they expect Him to come through for them. That's the, that's the overwhelming point of this story. It's to show that God's sovereignty reigns as He works or rescues people for His glory and for their good. He delivered them way before they ever got to Babylon. And let's look at the results. Prior to the story, who's worshiping God? Prior to, to, the, to the whole Daniel chapter 3. All we know of from the story is who? Just the three. And then Daniel, who most people think is not in the country at this time. So technically, as Daniel has unfolded, we know four people have been identified as God worshipers. Now that doesn't mean that everybody in Judah worshipped idols. But we do know that predominantly Judah worshipped idols, Babylonians worshipped idols. So we're told four people worship God. By the end of this story, we have a kingdom who's worshipping God. In verse 29 he says, nobody say anything against their God, everybody worship their God. We have a king who's worshipping God. A king who had demanded everybody focus on him. At the beginning of the story, it's what? Everybody worship my statue. Everybody worship me. By the end of the story, it's everybody worship their God. He's the one who rescues. He's the one who saves. It carries over into chapter 4, verse 1 through 3. 
King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are His signs, how mighty His wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. By the end of the story, Nebuchadnezzar worships God. He's pointing other people to worship God as well. It's all about God working for himself. It's all about God bringing glory to himself. God assesses the situation and says, huh, we got Judah who doesn't worship me. We got Babylonian people who don't worship me. Let's fix this. Let me take Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel, and we're going to move them to Babylon, and we're going to have this whole situation play out with the fiery furnace because I'm interested in the end part. I'm interested in everybody glorifying me. The whole story is about God getting glory, honor, and worship. And we see it carry over all the way to Bethlehem. Because these aren't the only guys that worship. We've got wise men who show up at the birth of Jesus. Who are most likely a direct result, a direct impact from the people who were affected by this story. That word begins to get established in Babylon that God is real and that he's sending a Messiah. So that when wise men from the east show up at Bethlehem to worship Jesus, there are still people from Babylon that have come to worship Jesus. The story doesn't stop here. God says, not only am I interested in in the Babylonians of that time worshiping me, I'm interested in wise men showing up at the birth of my son to worship him. It's all about God being worshipped. It's all about God receiving the glory. So we go back to 1 Thessalonians. And we see how Paul is describing these people's salvation. He says in verse 9, For you yourselves, for they report concerning this, the kind of reception we had among you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. This is how it applies to us. It's it's the gospel that we're to proclaim to Sonoy and the surrounding areas. That we're to preach to people. That they are to turn from their idols. That we're to set the example of what turning from idols looks like. Just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That we live a life so pure, so unadulterated from the effects of this, this culture, that we're separated from it, that we demonstrate what it looks like to turn from idols, that we demonstrate what it looks like to serve a God who may or may not always deliver us from our trials, but a God who we believe and trust is good and who is working for his glory and honor. And then that last part, that we're waiting for Jesus to come back. That we yield our bodies up rather than serve another God. Because we know we have been delivered from coming wrath. Remember, that's the last part of verse 10. That we've been saved from wrath to come. That's what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had in the back of their minds. Nebuchadnezzar says, you worship me or I'm going to burn you in fire. And I got to think Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are thinking, this won't last very long. You throw us in here, we're going to be torched in no time if God doesn't want to deliver us. That doesn't even compare 
to what an eternity in hell would look like if we were to endure the wrath of God to come. I mean, think about it. It's a no-brainer for these guys. I mean, if they understand what the alternative is, oh, okay, we don't want to go in the fiery furnace. We'll worship your gods. We'll turn our back on God. Well, they've got a different fiery furnace waiting for them. The gospel is us turning from idols to serve the living and true God, waiting for Jesus to return, knowing that we've been delivered from the wrath to come, which, as Revelation says, allows us to not love our lives even to the point of death. That we can serve God faithfully and not worry about dying because we've been delivered from the wrath to come. And then we see in chapter 2, where we'll be next week, Verse 1, for you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. We are called to share the gospel faithfully, the same gospel that has saved us from our idolatry to the people in this area. And we're to understand that our efforts are not in vain. If it takes years for us to see our very first person converted to the gospel through our efforts here. We're not here to impress man. We're not here to impress people from other church plants. We're not here to impress people from our previous churches about how fast we're growing or not growing. We're here to please God. God is the one who comes through. It's God who rescues people from idolatry, not us. Even a lost person like Nebuchadnezzar realized it's God who rescues people genuinely from idolatry. We can't convince anybody to follow Jesus. Setting up a church plant and and calling ourselves Christians and doing the church thing, and it's not us that can convince anybody to follow Jesus. It's God who rescues people in this way. He rescued people in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's time, and he rescues people today, just like he did when Paul established the church in Thessalonica. Our God will come through as we remain faithful to this church plant to share the gospel. But I told you beforehand, we can't expect different results from what we've gotten in the past, if we keep doing what we've done in the past. Us showing up and meeting and saying, man, it's great to be a part of Sovereign Hope, is not going to see anybody come to Christ. We have to demonstrate a life separated from idols to the people in this community. It starts with us loving each other, because Jesus says, as we love each other, the lost world's going to be confused by that and drawn to it. But it also... It also has to do with us faithfully communicating a gospel that Paul says we've been entrusted with. We've been entrusted to take it and to share it and to trust God that he will save and he will deliver people in this way. Let's pray. God, we praise you and thank you so much that throughout your word you are telling a story of how you plan to to glorify and honor yourself. And God, we recognize you could do that absent from our good. It doesn't require you to be good to us for you to get glory and honor. You're going to honor and glorify yourself regardless. But God, we are so thankful that you have included us in that plan. That not only are you in the business of glorifying yourself, you're also in the business 
of doing good to your children. And so, God, I thank you that as, as Christians here this morning, we have assurance that not only is the story about you glorifying yourself, it's also about how you are working things for our good. And, God, we thank you for example after example in Scripture of how you do this. God, we thank you for the story of the fiery furnace. We thank you for Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Daniel who stood up for their faith, who serve as an example to us of how we should stand up for our faith. But God, help us to recognize why we should stand up for our faith. That it's all about you receiving the glory and honor that you deserve. God, I pray that you would use this church, use us as individuals, in the same way you use Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego as instruments to point other people to you. God, that you would do whatever it takes, whatever it takes. And if it means some of us losing our life, then God, I pray we would willingly yield our life up for that purpose. Whatever it takes for your name to be made great in this area and in the surrounding areas. God, help us to recognize that you uniquely can save people in this way. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Tyson's going to come and, and lead us in the response to what we've heard from the Word.